Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. As uh, Christine mentioned, we are on a brand new series called Life Together, and we're taking the next six to seven weeks to really talk about uh, committee. What does it look like for the people of God to do life together? What does it look like to do committee so well? And we get this idea of life together from the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he wrote that book. He gave a charge, a call to all who were, um, you know, his students in, in that clandestine seminary that this, you know, this way of life, this teachings must be stronger than the culture all around us. And it's with that kind of prophetic contrast that we are, we are embarking on this conversation of exploring how the Christian community is to be distinctive, is to be well differentiated, and I'll go even further to say compelling to the world that is all around us, that there must be something about the way we do life that will compel the world to go, hey, I need to be a part of that, that we capture the hearts and minds of the world by the way we love one another, right? You know, the goal of this series is for us to capture or recapture really the biblical vision of community. Uh, in a cultural moment where there are tons of other community options, so to speak, what does it mean to be a community that's so well differentiated and to some extent subversive to all that is wrong and pervasive in our culture? Amen? Yep. It's a kind of love, you know, that we have to wonder that the world will go, hey, this is misplaced. This is irrational, right? Only blood relatives love each other that way. But what if we as a people step into that vision of becoming a family, right? Where we love one another to such a great extent that the world will go, hey, this is misplaced. This is irrational. There must be something either really kooky or something really profound in that committee. And that's the vision that we're stepping into. And that's what we talked about in week one. We talked about the church committee as a family. How do we become the family of God, you know, where we move from just spectatorship into participation, where we move from uh, just living within the realms of our preferences to uh, commitment, and where we value the collective good, the needs of the many uh, over our own, right? You know, um, a popular kind of pop fiction kind of uh, parallel to that would be what Spock said from Star Trek, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of one, right? And that concept is so, is so foreign that we made the guy who said it an alien, uh, you know, and even though my Jedi can kick that Star Trek butt, uh, that, that statement still rings true, doesn't it, right? And so uh, we did that in week one. If you didn't listen to it, I uh, if you weren't, there, weren't here, uh, no, please listen to the podcast. I won't bore you with a recap. Uh, but are you ready for week two? Yeah. Shall we jump in? Right, let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for uh, this moment uh, that we get to come together in a manner like this. Lord, we thank you uh, for your presence, God, where we sing, where we praise and where we magnify your name, uh, you come. You're present in our midst. Uh, God, your word says when the Son of Man is high and lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And so God, today, even through uh, the reading of your word, respond to that divine invitation. We draw near to you. We come near to you. We want to experience you beyond a concept, beyond a historical figure. We want to experience your very presence. God, we know that you are alive, that you are seated on the throne that you're here in our midst through your spirit. So God, we ask that we will meet you in such a profound manner. God, we thank you for this time that we get to read of your words. God, this is not just a vain study exercise, but it's a moment in time where we are open, our spirits are open to receive you, to experience you. 
So God, we ask even in this moment that your spirit will have its way. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will come in power, come in your might, come in your power, encounter us, meet with us in this place. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, this is week two, and so for the first couple of weeks of uh, every series, I'll uh, take a bunch of time to lay some foundational pieces that will be really beneficial uh, for us in the weeks to come. And so, uh, all that I say, you know that there is a lot of ground to cover, uh, but, but it's all good ground. It's all good ground. Hopefully, it falls on good ground. Um, um, but, but, you know, I think it's really important for us to set these foundation pieces in place. And so all that to say, uh, we might not land on a super conclusive kind of landing, uh, but we have four or five weeks more to go. And so, uh, you know, as the weeks progress, I believe that uh, things will begin to unfold and take shape. Amen? Now, uh, last week, I, I started off with a confession, right? You know, I shared uh, my personal indulgence uh, into the drug that is Korean dramas. And so... Uh, in that moment, uh, some of you found solidarity with me, and a good chunk of you just lost outright respect. You know, you're like, this guy, I'm not even sure about this church anymore. And so, um, some of you were impressed at my watching abilities, how fast I actually like, went through a series. And then some of you were concerned whether you hired the right guy at all, and whether he actually does any work. But anyway, all that, all that good stuff. Um, but I want to begin with another confession, right? You know, I think we're in the vein of like, you know, you getting to know me, I getting to know you, and I think this openness and vulnerability thing is a really good thing. And so uh, I want to begin with another confession. <clears throat> now, uh, I have this extraordinarily bad habit uh, of pretending I'm on my phone a lot. <laughs> now, um, I, I don't know whether you do that, but sometimes in a setting, right, or in a conversation where I'm not sure how I can contribute, or like, you know, I, I'm just not jiving and like vibing the person, I just like pretend I'm on the, on the phone. And I don't go on Facebook, because that's just outright rude. I go on my email, and then I'm just like refreshing, re- reading old emails, just looking. I have, a, I have a good busy face, and I know it well. I can look really occupied, so I was like, I'm busy, you know, like I, I have to attend to this email. And so I pretend on my phone a lot. You know, sometimes I keep my, my earphones in my ears, but there's no music. Uh, it's just because I want to live in this invisible bubble where I feel like isolated and distanced from the world. Uh, recently, you know, uh, I was walking downstairs and I saw an old secondary school friend. I've not seen him in like, what, 10, 15 years. And I saw him in the distance. And, you know, uh, in my head, I was like, man, that's, a, that's an old friend. But in my head, I suddenly was taken to like the possible conversation that could happen. He was like, so what do you know now? They're like, I'm a pastor. Then you go, what, you? Really? You're a pastor? Tell me about it. Then I have to get into all of that. Then I was like, wow, you know, I'm really tired. I didn't really want to get to it. And so when I saw him in the distance, I picked up my phone, put it on my ear, and pretended I was on a call. And so when he walked past me, I go like, hey. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, just sense a lot of judgment here. Um, yeah. Do I have a witness? No? Um, okay, so why did I just out myself and potentially like, make you really disappointed in me? Why did I just out myself? Um, because you, know, you, you have to know the person who's up here advocating for community, right? You know, I'm like introvert par excellence, right? You know, if there's like a scale, right, I'm pretty far up the scale, right? You know, if it was like some like really extroverted, like kind of party person up here advocating for community, you have uh, every reason, every right to be suspicious that the person probably has a bent towards it. But like, you know me pretty decently well now. You know that I'm an introvert. And uh, you know, this picture of like, you know, this introvert guy who likes a lot of like 
private moments, who is like very, lives a very isolated kind of thing. Like he's advocating for community. He's saying community is important. He participates in community. Why is that so? Now, um, you know, a popular kind of myth is that, you know, uh, people think that introverts are uh, not relational. I don't think so. I think introverts are relational. They're just not social. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get people come up to me all the time like, oh, you're an introvert. You must hate people, right? <laughs> and I go, no, I just hate you. Uh, <laughs> I say that in my head. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, it's it, right. Because, you know, uh, all of us have a need to be relational. Yeah. All of us want to be relational. All of us want to yeah. be connected uh, beyond just the surface level, but a deep, visceral kind of connection. All of us crave for that. Whether you're introvert or whether extrovert, wherever you fall on the spectrum, you want connection. You want community. Am I right? Yeah. Now, uh, this idea of community is not... Christian exclusive, right, as we explored in week one, right? Uh, it sits well in our culture. We have communities all around us. Today, most would not reject the idea of being part of community. The idea, for the most part, sounds appealing, which leads us to the question, right, uh, that I proposed earlier, right? What makes the Christian community so compelling, yeah. right? What makes us so appealing? What makes us so distinct? What makes us so well differentiated from the way of the world? Now, there was a study done by two Harvard uh, Divinity School students called How We Gather, and it's basically an attempt to re-socialize the world with Christian ideals without God. And in the study, it lists down six themes. The six themes are community, personal transformation, social transformation, accountability, creativity, and purpose finding. Six themes. They, they listed down these six themes. And it asks the question that study, how do millennials and people in Generation Z meet these needs of community, transformation, accountability, creativity, and purpose finding. And what they discovered in their course of study is that many of the human longings previously routed towards formal religious institutions were now routed to other mechanisms of belonging like SoulCycle and CrossFit. Now, SoulCycle is essentially a spin class, if you don't know what it is. Spin class is essentially you ride a bike, but you go nowhere. That's what spin is. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. <laughs> right. Thank you, brother. Um, now, Soul Cycle, which essentially is this like, massive chain of like, spin studios, right, talks about how people come for the body but stay for the breakthrough. Amazing tagline. And this is what they, talk, they say about themselves. This is what Soul Cycle says about the experience. It's a good workout, but that's only the beginning. Really, what people experience is a sense of release of stress or new insight and clarity about what's important to them, or renewed commitment to the goals in their life, or an experience of sanctuary amid anxiety and pressure from their job. So it's really an emotional and spiritual experience as well as a physical one. This is what they taught themselves to be. And it's true for the most part, right? You spin people. Um, here I have my next slide, and my next slide is about CrossFit. And a CrossFit goer described the CrossFit experience as an intimate, supportive one in which cheering for one another to meet Fitness goals was expected. Uh, the person says it's a culture that can produce effects more than more often associated to going to church. She said this in contrasting her CrossFit experience to her experience in church. She said this, There is something raw and vulnerable that happens to you when you go into a CrossFit gym. A workout can bring you to your knees, so to speak. <laughs> Welcome to our cultural climate. Honestly, isn't this true? Right? Honestly, isn't this true? You go to a studio, fitness studio of your choice. You bond with people. You do hard things together. You sweat it out. There's accountability, motivation. So you see progress, grow, physical change in your body. And then you go to a life group full of needy, broken people. 
And then you go, ah, it is so unappealing, right? This is not fun at all. Then you go back to this other thing and then you find satisfaction, fun, motivation, accountability. So it looks better and better over time. And over time, your affections for community get placed outside the body of Christ and the church gradually becomes weak, less appealing and optional. This is what happens. So the question is, you know, what is to be the compelling vision of community, of the way we do life together, that we are to cast and endeavor to live up to once again, that will capture the hearts and minds of the world. Now, today I want to kick off with a definition of community, and I think it's a super compelling one, and I quote this from our friends at The Vine Hong Kong, and so I asked Andrew Gardner for permission, and he said, bro, use and abuse my sermons, man. Just invite me back again. And so, shout out to Andrew Gardner. But this is such a compelling vision of community. He says this. this is, there's three paragraphs. He says this. Christian community in the New Testament and contemporary church is a Christ-centered, spirit-led, prayerful, and submitted to Scripture. Members of the community pledge their commitment to one another, choose to live sacrificially, and pursue an ongoing journey of personal transformation. Next slide. Through hospitable, unhurried time together, particularly around food and fun, this unified yet diverse community displays radical love, acceptance, and respect for one another. Real, authentic, vulnerable relationships create an environment of honest and open communication where the truth is spoken in love. Forgiveness is frequent and encouragement is constant. Next slide. In this mission-minded, multi-generational family of faith, outsiders are welcomed in and present needs are met as each member contributes what they have and uses their gifts for the glory of God and the common good. Isn't that a compelling vision of community, the people we are and can become? Now, if I were to sum up that definition into one word, it's simply the word transformation. Transformation. Now, this word uh, in the Bible is the word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. So think like caterpillar into a butterfly. That, in, that, that like obvious, right, almost irrecognizable like change and contrast, that level of transformation. Right, it's possible in your life and mine. That is the goal to which we are to endeavor to. For week two of Life Together, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of a transforming community. Transforming community. Now, the goal and vision for all of us doing life together is that through participation, commitment, and the work of the Holy Spirit, our communities can become places where we experience some of the most profound moments of breakthrough and transformation. Community in tandem with teaching and practice is how we change. And on a deep soul level, all of us crave change. All of us crave transformation. If we were to take a moment to be honest with ourselves right now, there are things that we struggle with, thoughts that we struggle with, things that we, we would rather not have in an ideal world. Right? We have identified these things as contrary to the way of God, contrary to what the Bible says, contrary to the way God sees us. And these things, right, a very real part of our life, right, often is glanced over, often is pushed down. But my suggestion to you and my proposal is you, to you is that through community, these things get surfaced. And they, they aren't just surfaced for you to play around with. They're surfaced. And through family, through the love of people, through the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed out of dysfunctional behaviors, thoughts, and patterns in our lives. 
That is the vision of community. Amen? Now, Jefferson Beck here, not, not sure how many of you are familiar with him, but he attained YouTube fame with his spoken word, Why I Hate Religion But Jesus. Uh, but I Love Jesus. <laughs> Why I Hate Religion But I Love Jesus. Now, I'm not going to perform a spoken word because it's not in my gift mix. It's not one of my spiritual gifts. But uh, he once asked pastor and author and all around brilliant man, Tim Keller, a question on Twitter. And here's a question and response. He says, he asked Tim Keller this. Tim Keller, if you were to give my generation, millennial, one piece of advice and encouragement, what would it be? He answers him, you are the generation most afraid of real community because it inevitably limits freedom and choice. Get over your fear. What a line from Tim. What a line. Get over your fear. And that is exactly so, right? This idea of community, of committing to people, carries with it so much fear, right? Fear, uh, maybe because of the uncertainty and the variableness that is people. People change, people are weird. How can I commit to a people that I'm, I'm not even fully certain of? And another way that fear is exacerbated, it, perhaps it could be traumatic experiences, right? Deep, broken experiences that you had with previous communities that shapes your perspective, your worldview, and your expectation of the communities to come. Get over your fear. It's rightly so. It is to be acknowledged, but it is to be something that we push through and break through because when we push through fear, there's transformation on the other side. But aside from sound pastoral advice from Tim Keller, uh, the reason why I brought up this Twitter exchange is because I'd like to comment uh, just briefly on the cultural redefinition of the word follow. Now, that is Twitter language, right? If you want to check out a person's Twitter feed, you follow them. Now, the word follow has seen a drastic redefinition. I will go on further to say dilution, especially in the last five to ten years. The idea of following someone in the past, especially in the ancient Near East, had ideas of leaving your place of dwelling to follow. It had ideas of sacrifice, tremendous inconvenience, life change, and definitely self-denial. But today, following someone is as simple as clicking a button. What it used to mean, what used to mean proximity and engagement, today suggests distance and spectatorship. And it's especially so in this cultural climate that we're living in that we need to rediscover what it means to follow Jesus. What it actually means to follow Jesus not just in agreeing with his ideals and beliefs or what we understand to be ethics, but what does it mean to follow Jesus? And I would propose to you, it, following Jesus doesn't look like agreeing with a set of beliefs and values. As important as it is, following Jesus is adopting his way of life. And we'll see that theme all through, all consistent through the library of Scripture. Now, it's especially so that, that we, we, we begin this exercise of discovering what it means to follow Jesus uh, by going through the gospel of Matthew and exploring Jesus's relationship with and in community. Amen? Let's begin with our first passage of scripture. Now we're just going to do a Bible drill. You know, if you have a Bible, we're going to like, go through Matthew and go to flip, flippity flip. But if you don't, just uh, observe. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 22, it says this about Jesus. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, 
and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I'm just going to read through a bunch of scripture and draw a few observations. We're going to go through these fairly quickly, and I'm going to land the plane uh, shortly. You with me? Now, we, we observe here, right, Jesus calls, um, previous slide, <laughs> Jesus calls uh, uh, Simon called Peter, Andrew's brother, and then uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, to follow him. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right, these were all Torah observant boys. They were all uh, boys who, uh, you know, were seeking to live in accordance to God's will, to God's way. And they lived in Galilee, which was basically the epicenter and hotspot for all who wanted to follow an apprentice under a rabbi. Now, further down the text, we read that, uh, that uh, you know, Jesus said to them, like, uh, I will make you fishers of men, right? They were fishermen, and Jesus says to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, Jesus is not doing like a wordplay kind of a thing, right? I think, you know, that language will be lost in that day, right? But what Jesus is essentially saying with this term fisher of men is actually a first century euphemism that to mean great teacher, right? Hey, you know, you have caught fish, you catch fish, but I will make you into one who teaches and explains the word of God, the Torah, so that you capture the hearts and minds of men. It was a first century euphemism to mean great teacher. And it was with this invitation that the disciples left their place of dwelling, left their boats, their careers, and followed Jesus. Now, you will notice this, that for Jesus, the call to follow him was simultaneously a call to community. It was simultaneously a call to community. Where Jesus is concerned, community is non-optional for followers of Jesus. For Jesus, following him wasn't just about embracing his ideals beliefs or ethics, but it was adopting his way of life, and his way of life was that of community. You can't do the Christian life alone. You can't do the Christian life alone. You need people around you, and community is essential to, this, to discipleship. Another observation we make was that Jesus himself lived in community, right? He wasn't some white-haired hermit that lived on top of a mountain and passed down wise saying through pigeons. He lived and traveled with his disciples, right? Jesus did not have a disciple. He had disciples. We never once read about Jesus and Peter, but there was always Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jesus and the twelve, Jesus and the seventy, Jesus and the hundreds, Jesus and the thousands learning at his feet. That is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. Christ, our Messiah, the Son of God, chose to live in community. He chose to be entangled in the messy web that is human relationships. And culturally, you know, we, we think that, hey, you know, once we attain some kind of emotional wholeness and health and like know-how in life, we are then excused from the messy web of community. I am better than that. I don't need any of that. But Jesus chose to live in community. And what is even more staggering, if you were to track me further, is that God himself exists as a community. God exists as a community, right? In the beginning, you read in Genesis chapter 1, it says this about God. God said, let us make mankind in our image. And so the natural question you can ask is, who is God talking to, right? Some scholars believe that God was talking to the heavenly beings. He was talking to these heavenly beings that existed with, with him in heaven. He was talking to them, hey, let us make mankind our image. But that's a small a percentage of scholars who actually believe that. The majority of scholars believe that God was talking to himself. 
I talk to myself often. But God is, was talking to himself, which Jesus later clarifies that God is talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So right here in the, at the beginning of scriptures, we see God himself existing as a community in relationship with one another. Now this makes sense to me, right? Because we all know that God is love and love presupposes some kind of relationship, right? We see the son honoring the father, the father loving the son, the son honoring the spirit, the spirit doing the will of the father. So when we choose to live in community, we aren't just following Jesus's example as valid and as good as that is, but we are in fact living in the likeness of the image of whom we were created in. One theologian words it beautifully. God is a family who builds family. Amen? Right, let's look at the next uh, passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 8. Are you ready? Cool. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is such a sobering passage of scripture. And we often just let it slip by. But I would, I would love for you to really spend some time pondering on the invitation and the cost that's presented in this text. Now, this may be a tough idea to swallow because when we think of Jesus, family, and community, we think of it being largely accepting and welcoming, true as it may be. But I believe there's a paradox at play here. While the gospel is inclusive in its invitation, it is exclusive by way of its demands. There's a paradox at play, right? Bury my father. It was not literal. It was a figure of speech. And this, in that day, will literally mean, let me go home, wait for my father to die, and for the family inheritance of land to pass down to me. Otherwise, if I abandon my family now, which was a taboo in that day, I would miss out on that inheritance. I love in that text that the writer doesn't go on to say what happened. The text just ends there. It doesn't go on to say what happened. And I love it because it's almost a way for you to identify the story. Where are you at with regards to the invitation of Jesus? What would you do if you were placed in that scenario. Now, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, it takes so much time for us to pass out. But, you know, if you were to just read this text at face value, it would almost seem that Jesus is calling for um, some kind of preference, some kind of, like, allegiance that goes higher than even your own immediate family. This is a tough pill to swallow, especially... Uh, in our modern age, where uh, especially in churches, like, we see the emergence of family life ministries with the brokenness of families that's prevalent all around us, and we have family life pastors, we have a great family life material course, we, have, we, we talk about it a lot. Um, and that is good. That should be a mainstay in every church as far as, I com- as I'm concerned. But can I humbly uh, just even present an observation, if you will, is that this that, that so often in life, you know, as we progress on the life stage, I'm saying this humbly because I don't have kids of my own and our family isn't fully set up yet. You know, we're still bringing in the pieces and the parts. But um, I've come to observe that so often in life, we have come to treasure the family unit over the core of discipleship. Now, they do overlap. They do overlap, but they're not synonymous. 
they do overlap, but they're not synonymous. Just because you're a great husband, father, son, mother, daughter, does not make you a good disciple of Jesus. If you have any kind of uh, disagreement, you can talk to me after the service. I'll be happy to dialogue further. (laughs) That did not go well at all. But anyway, uh, you realize, you know, uh, through this story that some people were ready and willing to uh, lay down their lives to follow Jesus, but for others, it was way too high above entry. Now, the observation here is that community isn't congruent with the idea of convenience. Community is inconvenient, right? And for most part in the world today, you know, when we talk about communities that we want to be a part of, convenience is pretty high up on the priority list of uh, attributes uh, connected to the community, right? Now, see, our world today is marked with increasing convenience, value for convenience, and innovation with a goal of greater convenience, right? Zygmunt Bowman, a Jewish sociologist who wrote the book Liquid Love, the Frailty of Human Bonds, uh, wrote this about our climate. It says, in a consumer culture like ours, which favors product ready for instant use, quick fixes, instantaneous satisfaction, results calling for no projected effort, foolproof recipes, all risk insurance, and money-back guarantees, the promise to learn the art of loving is a promise to make love experience in the likeness of other commodities that allure and seduce by brandishing all such features and promise to take the waiting out of one thing, sweat out of effort and effort out of results. Basically, love takes time. Love takes effort. Love is hard. But we want it to be like every kind of commodity, instantly accessible. Now, it's concerning to me. Don't sit on this for too long. But uh, in two hours from now, you can very well have sex with a complete stranger because of that because of an app, right? Through human ingenuity, if you were to think of it that way, our ability to cut through all the drama of relationship and facilitate the deepest, most intimate communion two people could ever experience is stuff. It's astounding. It's astonishing. That we have, through innovation and ingenuity, bypassed the mess of relationship and have structured even the most profound of all human experiences through the lens of convenience. However, relationships may be convenient, but they're often shallow and surface, right? We never get to the heart. All of our relationships become like Velcro relationships where they're easy to attach, but when needed, easy to detach. It's no wonder we live in what's described as an epidemic of loneliness because people are simply unwilling to pay the price for deep, authentic, meaningful relationships. But for Jesus... Community was not convenient. It required a price. Let's go on further in the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 10. Now it says this about Jesus. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, if you uh, just take a, a cursory glance on the text, you'll realize uh, something really uh, intriguing, right? Jesus lists down his 12 disciples, these 12 men who entrusted power to take his gospel, to take his good news to the ends of the earth. 
And uh, as you know, the, the writer lists down these men. I noticed that only two of the disciples had a moniker attached to their name, and they were Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Right? You observe that, right? It says Matthew the tax collector. Further down, it says, and Simon the zealot. Now, the term zealot uh, would, uh, would refer to a violent insurgent sect of first century Jews who often used guerrilla tactics to fight Rome. Right? The Hebrew word uh, for this group of men is the word sakario or sakario, which loosely translates to dagger men because they will hide daggers in their cloaks and like assault uh, unsuspecting Roman officials and soldiers. Now, these were men who hated absolutely anything that had to do with Rome. They were a guerrilla faction seeking to disrupt, seeking to dethrone the Roman rule and restore the rule of Israel. And that was Simon the Zealot. Matthew, the tax collector, right? If you're familiar with uh, all of the historical uh, background, tax collectors in that day literally worked for Rome. They were on Rome's payroll, right? Rome would take a cut from uh, their profits and the tax collectors would impose their own uh, cut uh, on the fees. And so uh, tax collectors were Jewish men, but they were often viewed as people who were enemies of the Jewish people, people who have... Uh, you know, betrayed uh, their people and have gone to work for the oppressors. Now, take a moment and imagine this. You had Simon the Zealot, revolutionary, hated Rome and everything that Rome stood for, and you had Matthew the tax collector, who literally was on the payroll of Rome, existing with, living with, and being with one another. Think about that. If, if that is imagery that you can't really grasp, picture like, Greta Thunberg, right, sitting in a Bible study with, like, the CEO of, like, a major coal mining corporation, yeah. right? Two of them sitting, and, like, Trump is there, just, just for kicks, <laughs> right? Would there be just a little bit of tension? Yes, right? Would there be some looks from across the room? Yes. Would there be frustrations and words exchanged? Yes. So Jesus puts together this little community from across the spectrum. And it's not just social, political differences, but even personality, right? You had Peter, who was a bit more loud, brash, kind of a type A personality. And then you had Thomas, the doubter, probably like cynical and a bit more introverted. And then you had like James and John, the sons of thunder, these like fiery guys who wanted to call on fire to consume a village. And then you had Judas Iscariot, a bit cold, analytical, calculative. These mishmash of believers are incredibly diverse. Jesus puts them together and calls them his community, his family. My point is, this concept of diversity seems so ideal, but I'll put it to you that, that I doubt they had an easy time, even in the first century, working through their differences. We talk about it as like some value they want to have, but when push comes to shove, when rubber meets the road, when differences have to be ironed out, do we stay put? to work through them? Or do we simply, in, in response and in reflection of our culture, hop onto the next community, hoping to find a better experience? John Tyson says this, <clears throat> In today's culture, we have loose communal groups built upon identity markers and personal preferences, which are fueled by shared experiences. But in the kingdom of God, he uses an entirely different paradigm to create holy community. God brings people together from many different backgrounds and renames them the people of God. 
He then gives them a shared purpose in the world to build his kingdom instead of allowing people to endlessly run after their own preferences and desires in search of or in defense of their individual identity. He gives each person a part to play in his shared mission. Each person is unique yet interdependent. Powerful vision. Unique yet interdependent. Part of the body of Christ. Amen? Because for many of us, we have isolated the meaning of community to simply mean chemistry and common interests. The people to whom I have chemistry with and common interests, these are my community. These are my people, my peeps. Um, you young people language. Um, you know, this idea of chemistry is this like neurological spark that we get when we have instant connection with, with someone who is like, like us. Uh, most would say that this is some malform of narcissism. Like, yes and no, you know, I think we all want to be people who like us. C.S. Lewis puts it, this way that the root of all friendship is you too. Like, you too? You too? You know, kind of thing? Not me too, you too. Uh, just to be clear. Um, you know, uh, I recently, uh, a few months ago, met this guy, and I met him through a mutual friend, and we, we, we grabbed coffee together. And uh, when he walked into uh, the cafe, you know, he walked in and he wore a pair of Red Wings uh, boots I have now. Now these boots are like some of my treasured possessions. They're supposed to last long enough for my grandchildren to wear them. And so, um, and so he wore a pair of Red Wings. I was like, man, it's like, you have a pair of Red Wings? Then I was like, I was like me too. And he's like, oh, you, you have them too. And then, so we sat down and then we started talking about like life and our spiritual journey. And we saw like all these parallels uh, between our personal faith journeys. It's like, oh, you too. It's like, you too. It's like, your wife's a teacher. It's like, my wife's a teacher. And like all these similarities. And he wore an Apple Watch. So I knew he was apostolic and he's legit. And he didn't participate in like the, nah, nah, I won't lose you further. But he wore an Apple Watch, you know. And then we started talking and realized that, hey, the language you use for certain things is like super similar. And then we realized that we both are big fans of the same podcast, which most people don't listen to. We were like, what? You too, you too, you too, you too. And so like we really vibed and our first meeting went on for four hours. We really, really connected. And so I went back home and I was telling Amy, I was like, man, I met this guy. I was like, wow, he listens to like this podcast. Like I never thought I would meet another person on planet Earth that would listen to this podcast, uh, let alone Singapore. And then they had like this stuff, this stuff. And so I started talking about him and I didn't stop talking about him for like three or four days. Amy, I'm pretty sure, thought like I had like a massive problem uh, at that point in time. And so I was like really vibing and like really connecting this guy. It's like, wow, right? Really, really like, man, this guy, so cool, so cool because he's, he's like me. Um, <laughs> narcissism, that's, that's where it crosses narcissism. But anyway, so uh, that's a new friend that I make. And I would be careful to call him a friend and not my community. Because he's not uh, in, involved in the intricacies of my life. He doesn't see me at home. He doesn't see me uh, doing life. He doesn't see me when I'm grumpy. He doesn't see me when I had a tough day. He doesn't see me when I'm stressed out. We connected well, but he's not involved in my life. And I, I, what I would like to say to you is that you can have uh, chemistry with people that you're not in community with, but you also can have community with people that you don't have chemistry with. Take my life group, for example. Very different. Gideon, me. Different, right? <laughs> but, you know, we do life together. We have community, right? And I love my community. I love my life group, right? We, we, we aren't, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I connect super well and have, like, crazy chemistry with every single person. But these people are people who, like, see my home. They see me in shorts. They try my food. You know, they see me when I'm down. They see me when I'm grumpy. They've experienced that. They are... Uh, 
pray with me when I'm downtime. That is my community. That's my community. And the world would define community as chemistry, common interests. But biblical community looks incredibly diverse. Almost different, almost like opposing ends. But it's in that mix of difference, diverse, that the best kind of growth happens. Where you actually like experience friction, tension, and have to work through that. That's where growth happens. And it's with that that we read the next passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 20. Are you following me? Yes, thank you. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, It goes like this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, we read about them earlier on, came up to him, Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one in the right hand and one in the left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? They said to him, the sons, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to to grant by this for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Next slide. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. This is a Bible language for a word that I can't say from the front. At the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this story, you read that the sons of Zebedee, they wanted to get ahead, and so they got mommy involved. And so like mommy, go and talk to like Jesus and like make it happen. And so, you know, Jesus then like starts talking to them, and, you know, uh, and then, like, plot, plot twist, right? right? The two of them, like, actually, you know, if you read the story for what it is, the two of them and mommy actually talked to Jesus on their own. The ten did not know about it. They weren't present. And when they heard about it, they were indignant that they actually did that. But further down the story, Jesus then uh, goes through this, this profound, uh, makes these profound statements. He says this, right? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, these, this cultural climate that we live in, they lord it over them. This is the way they do things, right? They exercise authority. They do all these things. But it shall not be so among you. You are to be different. You are to be well differentiated. You are to look different from the host culture to which we are living under. Meaning this, right? To live in this new community under the rule of God is to live with a whole different set of dynamics than the world. It's to live not with power as a center point, but love for each other as the center point. Not so with you. You are to be different. Now, in short, the goal of community, as far as Jesus is concerned, is transformation. Is transformation. It isn't just a fun, wholesome, social setting of like-minded individuals who get along. But it even isn't, it, it also, it even isn't isolated to needs being met, as good as that may be. But the angle was people who are transformed, increasingly modeling and reflecting our Messiah. And if I can sum up further all that I've said, right, community is not, does not equal to chemistry, convenience, and common interests. But the Jesus kind of community was one that was diverse, one that was sacrificial, not convenient, and one that was immensely transformational. Are you following me? Yeah. It isn't just come as you are, be you, we accept you, as great as that may be. But his goal, Jesus' goal for his disciples, and I'll go on further to say your life and mine, is to grow us, 
to mature us, to transform us. And that is the goal of community. And we need to recapture that vision in order to be compelling to the world in which we live in. A recent Barna survey found that a majority of self-identified Christians today, 52%, believe that there is more to Christian life than they have experienced. But 46% say that their life has not changed as a result of going to church. Now, I spent the last couple of months reading books on community, uh, diving into books after books. I read something about 10 to 12 books. I know I'm a, I'm a book guy, but I really, really uh, love the subject. And so I've been like, doing a deep dive into these concepts of community. And almost every single writer in writing about what sabotages the Christian community, unlike any other, right? They, they all agree uh, almost on the same thing, the same culprit that sabotages our pursuit of building a Christian community. And that is this. The culprit is the culprit of idealism. Idealism. Idealism sabotages our pursuit of building the Christian community unlike any other. And now this is defined as unrealistic belief or the pursuit of perfection. It's when we have an idealized vision of community and are often confronted with the messy reality of community that we fall into disappointment disillusionment and ultimately give up. Now, this idealized vision is not a kingdom biblical vision, right? You know, if you're honest with ourselves, our idealized vision of community often is often shaped around our own preference, comforts, and convenience, and that community never happens, right? A defining force that has shaped many of today's Christians uh, is radical individualization, and this kind of individualism can be succinctly defined as the sovereignty of self, self over others, self over community, self over inconvenience, and self over commitment. Our life and longings are formed around a vision of personal fulfillment at all costs. Everyone and everything exists for us. We want our lives to be an epic story in which we play the starring role. And it's into this human condition that we get a dose of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says this, Every human wish, dream that is injected into a Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Have we not seen this play out in the lives of others and tragically so even in our own lives. We read Acts chapter 2 last week, right? And this is the compelling vision of what community is to be. And uh, this is on the tale of uh, the day of Pentecost. And I won't get into that, but we all familiar this story in Acts chapter 5, uh, further down, three chapters down after Acts chapter 2 of Ananias and Sapphira, right? You know, they, 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 they did this thing, right? You know, and and uh, can I have my slide up? It's not there. Acts chapter 5. Right, you know, we read this story, right, and I, I, won't, I won't read it through, but we're familiar with this story, and then, you know, uh, we saw the judgment of God fall upon them, and, uh, and when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, he died, and great fear came upon all who believed it. Now, the observation I'd like to make is this, that even in this church, right, that was on the tail end 
of a massive move of the Spirit, which is brand new, no baggage, right? The Apostle Peter is in charge, right? Way more competent than I am. Even this church had masses, right? You know, we often wear this rhetoric, man, I wish we were like the early church. Do you really, you know? Like ushers, this guy just held it because he lied at the altar call, <laughs> like wrapping up and take him out. <laughs> Even this church, which was, which was brand spanking new, had its share of masses, much less us. Now, John Vanier, the founder of uh, Lush Communities, uh, now all over the world, which fosters relationships between those with and without disabilities, uh, these communities are all around the world, and uh, it's an amazing work. Uh, Henry Nowen, a guy that we're a big fan of, uh, spent some of his most formative uh, moments living amongst this community. Now, uh, John Vanier said this about community. He says this, Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at the least the most ex- exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and of true commitment. They no longer see each other, uh, each other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. Now, um, most of you might not be aware, but it's super poignant that I'm quoting John Vanier because uh, John Vanier has become a real personal uh, faith hero of mine. He has passed on uh, somewhere last year and he's founded all these committees, amazing work. Uh, he wrote uh, extensively about navigating through disappointment with mentors, with leaders, uh, amazing writer and uh, man of faith. Uh, but it came out uh, some two weeks ago that uh, John Vanier actually sexually abused women uh, during his time of ministry. And, uh, you know, it's something that I'm still trying hard to grapple with, but I think uh, there are lessons at, 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 at play here. I think uh, a lesson that we need to learn at some point in our lives is to be able to decouple the failure of a man and the inspired work uh, from God that the man actually accomplished for us to decouple it and not throw the good inspired work out with the failures of the men. Um, and so uh, the plan is somewhere down the series, we will be talking about uh, walking through pain, hurt, and disappointment uh, that is caused by the church. And so um, pray for us even as we tackle that topic uh, in weeks to come, God willing. Now, taking inspiration from Vanya's quote, we can map out the stages of community, right? It starts out with idealism, idealization, and excitement, right? Man, this community is so cool. Andre is so cool. Sorry, PD is so cool. And, uh, and Andre is okay. And, uh, and, and man, I, I, I love it. I love it, man. So young, so vibey, you know, like, wow. Like, people are talking. It's so young. It's so awesome. Man, I love being a part of this community. How many of you have, have, have experienced that phase, right? You join them. It's like, wow, you know, they do things so well. People all look happy. They look great. And then, you know, some two weeks in, you hit disenchantment. You are disenchanted with everything. You're like disillusioned. You're like, what is this? Man, Andre has flaws. I did not sign up for flawed pastor. I did not sign up for a broken community. What is this people with their needs? I thought everyone was perfect. They look all shiny, but now they look all gross. And so, you know, we hit this stage of disenchantment, right? And then the next step, as Vanya uh, proposes, is that we come into a place of acceptance, or we accept the flaws, we accept the work in progress, we accept the imperfections, right? 
But often when we hit this stage, we hit a wall. We hit a wall between disenchantment and acceptance, right? And we hit a wall, and it's really hard to push through. It's really hard to get over that disillusionment and disappointment. And what happens when we hit disenchantment? So often we either stay there or we cycle back to idealism and excitement. We go find another committee, we hop to another place, and we get excited all over again. And then we realize that, hey, you know, this place is filled with jacked up people as well. Then we get disillusioned as well. And then we're like, okay, maybe this is not the place. And then we hop over again and try to find a community. And we constantly find ourselves in this vicious cycle, toggling between excitement and disenchantment. Idealism and disappointment. But if we were to push through and realize that people are as flawed as we are, and accept them. That is the beginning of growth. That is the beginning of us dethroning the idol that is idolism. And what's on the other side of acceptance is this. It's love. It's when we choose to accept, choose to embrace flaws, and choose to stick with these people and work through these issues that we grow into a people of love. The New York, uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks has dubbed today the golden age of bailing the golden age of bailing. And what this means is that we can easily cancel rights and reservations, drop a text to miss an appointment, and when the game doesn't go our way, we can rage quit, we can quit. <laughs> the golden age of bailing. That is what is described as our cultural climate. But what if we choose to stay and accept the flaws and work through these differences and challenges and circumstances? That's where we step into love. Because the essence of love is choice in the midst of options. And when we stick it out in community through its messiness, inconvenience, moments that demand grace and patience, we are gradually formed into a people of love. Won't you stay with me? (laughs) I'm just going to skip through some stuff. One of the most regularly used images in the Bible to describe mankind are that of trees and plants. We read this all through the Psalms. Now, suppose you were a tree. Think of yourself as a tree. He's jealous of me. Love like a hurricane. I'm a tree. You are a tree, right? I'm a tree. And you were constantly uprooted, moved from point to point, from point to point, over an extended period of of time. The logical question to ask is this. Would growth, if any, be even possible? Now, a big reason we don't grow and are not transform is because we simply don't stay. We don't stay long enough for roots to be taken, for growth to actually happen, right? The process of transformation is supernatural in that it's something only God can accomplish in our lives through the work of the Spirit, right? But we can, through setting the right conditions for ourselves, partner with the work of the Spirit, and that is where spiritual transformation has, takes place. I would like to propose to you that much of the work that goes into transformation is simply staying put. It's staying put long enough, sticking it out long enough in the hard times, in the circumstances, and allowing the Spirit to work in and through you. St. Benedict calls this the practice of stability. And he goes on to explain it's the spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. Staying put to get somewhere. Now, I won't be able to get through everything, but uh, you know, I started off this message reading to you a definition of community, and uh, Andrew Gardner has wrote 
what he calls the anti-definition of community, what community is not supposed to be, but tragically is what we have gone on to experience in life. Can I have that definition of the anti-community? He says this. It's like way, way further down. He goes on to say, community in the church and in my life is often me-centered, goal-driven, spiritually empty and shallow. Members of this community show up when nothing else is happening, live selfishly and pursue an ongoing journey of personal satisfaction. Next paragraph. Through surface and rush time together, particularly between other meetings and work-related demands, this disjointed and individualistic community lacks love, acceptance and respect for one another. Fake distance, invulnerable relationships create an environment of vague and brief communication where real truth is seldom spoken, hurts are buried and and gossip prevails. Next slide. In this bland, exclusive, click-driven community, outsiders are kept at a distance and real needs within a group are rarely known because each member keeps to themselves both their needs and their resources, depriving God of glory and their neighbor of their love and help. Now, when we think of community, often the image that comes to mind is that of a safety net, right? You know, we walk through the tightrope, right, that is life, right? We walk through and traverse this tightrope that is life. There's life and community is that safety net beneath the tightrope that catches us when we fall. It is our fallback plan as we traverse the tightrope called life. But I would like to suggest to you that in that analogy, community isn't so much the safety net, it is the tightrope. It is that which demands your focus, that which demands your attention, that which demands care even as you navigate it. Community is the tightrope. But if I were to roll with that whole analogy of a safety net. I'd like to quote from the words of our senior minister, Taman Chamugaratnam. I don't believe in the notion of the safety net, but that of a trampoline. Community isn't a place where you're simply caught when you fall. It is a place where you are launched from hopelessness to hope, from darkness to light, from alienation to acceptance, from self-pity into confidence, and from apathy unto mission. This is community, not just a place we receive, but a place where we grow, where we give, and where we become a people of love. That is the compelling vision of what a community is to be. Amen? Stand. Sorry, uh, may you? Will you stand? Now, this is how we're going to end, end service in just a moment. We're going to come back into song. And as I mentioned last week, you know, really the high point, the climax of our time together is worship, right? You know, it is where we adore our King and our Savior. And our time in the Word and our study, uh, God willing, actually draws us into a place of deeper affection, deeper gratitude, but also deeper need for our Lord uh, to move in our lives. And so we're going to go back into worship as we do every Sunday. But before that, you know, I think... Uh, you can't talk about community and not practice it, right? And um, I didn't get into the story, but one of my favorite stories, and I believe it's a blueprint for what communities are to be, is the story of the two who traversed the, on the road to Emmaus and they met with the Messiah. And the story, you know, uh, they shared some of their deepest emotions. Jesus came in the midst of them. They compelled him to stay. He expounded scripture to them and they stayed with him. 
and they broke bread in the fellowship and in that moment their eyes were open and it shifted them from a place of cowardice where they were running away from Jerusalem into a place of great boldness and courage such that they actually returned from where they were trying to escape to bring the good news of the gospel. And I think community has the potential to do that. It has the potential to transform us from a place of hopelessness, fear and cowardice into a place of great boldness and hope. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite us to do that. I'm going to invite us to be the community of God for people who are in need. Now I ask for the, that, that third song to be played, you know, that whole idea of Christ being magnified. Now this is language that we are pretty familiar with, God be magnified. But just take a moment and think about it, right? Can you really make God bigger with your praise? You don't, right? You don't make God bigger by virtue of size. But what magnification does is that it draws your focus, it draws your attention, and it removes things from your peripheral vision and you're actually making that which you are magnifying the object of your attention and focus. And so when we sing Christ be magnified, that is what we're saying. Christ be magnified in my life. Rid the peripheral things that have sought to pull my gaze and vision away from you. Cause my eyes to be fixated on who you are. King Jesus. And I think community has the potential to do that. It has the potential to take us from a place of great despair where we are so self-focused and focused on our issues and circumstances and cause us to actually lift our eyes like those on the road to Emmaus to the grander vision that is God's kingdom. So I want to invite us to do community together before we go back to the song. With eyes closed with head bowed, you know, and I know there are many needs represented in this room and I've spent time with you and I know some of you are going through a really, really hard time, a time of hopelessness, a time of despair, a time of emotional brokenness, conflict and pain. Some of you have uh, people in your home that are sick, they need a miracle in their lives. Some of you are in great need of restoration in the family front. It seems hopeless. Uh, your eyes are so drawn and so fixated on the circumstance. And I want to invite you in just this moment to be vulnerable, to be open, just like the two were on the road to Emmaus, to share of your need, of your hurt openly, and allow the community of God to wrap themselves around you and cause your eyes to be lifted from your pain onto the grander vision as God's provision is found in this kingdom. With eyes closed, with head bowed in that place, if that is you, you have a need in your life, feeling hopeless, you're not sure how things are going to pan out, you need a miracle. You need people to stand with you and infuse hope, encourage you, put courage in your bones. You need that in your life. I would like you, count of three, to lift your hands. One, two, three.